Welcome to Watershed's July podcast. My name is Mark Cosgrove. I'm the cinema curator here at Watershed and welcome to this bumper edition of the podcast. And it's bumper because we are talking all things cinema rediscovered, which happened 20th to 24th of July. And to help me through this bumper edition, I am joined by co-host Steph Reed. Welcome, Steph. Thanks, Mark. Great to be here. We're going to be covering several of the strands from this year's Cinema Rediscovered in conversation with several of the curators behind them. Yeah, the festival now in its sixth year, it's grown and we're delighted that there are a number of curators involved in the various strands. You'll be able to hear me being interviewed by Steph on the strand that I put together for this year's festival. First up, we have Mark in conversation with Pamela Hutchinson, film critic, writer and film historian, who will be talking about the strand she's co-presenting with Christina Newland on Pre-Code Hollywood, Rules Are Made To Be Broken. Welcome, Pam. It's lovely to be here. Thank you so much for having me. You've been a great friend of the festival and indeed gave the Philip French Memorial Lecture last year, which was great. But one of the big influences for me on Cinema Discovered was Il Cinere Trovato in Bologna, which has now been going for 30 years. And that was where it kind of clicked for me that seeing, and I hesitate to say the word, older films and old films because it sets up an idea in people's minds. But when you see these films restored and represented in a festival like Il Cinere Trovato, they come alive and they feel so fresh and immediate. I mean, I know you're a regular attendee in Bologna. What's the experience like for you? Oh, well, for me, it's kind of mind-blowing. Those restorations are incredible. You go and see a pristine version of a classic film. Perhaps there's material reinstated that you want to see. But... I can turn around the corner and I can watch some early silent footage of places and people that I never thought I'd get to see in my life. And so it's this sort of extreme from the vintage print to the pristine DCP keeps me pinging around the city in excitement. I really do hesitate to say old and older because it does set up this idea of archive and people get a particular um, idea in your head but it's really in a festival like Bologna you know you want to say that these in quotes older films are as really as fresh when you see them again back up on the screen oh yeah so I don't really like to say old film I might say you know back catalogue but I, I like to say young film for the films that are 100 years old or more because that's when the medium was new I think like the films we're seeing now are old those are the young exciting films where they're trying things out they're inventing the, the whole medium as they go so uh, young cinema as well as that. Absolutely agree. And for this year, you and film writer and critic colleague Christina Newland have put together a fabulous strand called Pre-Code Hollywood. Rules were meant to be broken. And we'll come on to talk about some of the films specifically. But just to start with, for people that might not know, is what exactly is the code and what are pre-code films? The code, I think a lot of people have this idea that there's like a centralised censorship body and Hollywood didn't have that in the start. In the 1920s, a chap called Will Hayes was brought in to clean up the industry and together with these uh, studio executives, he came up with a list of don'ts and be carefuls, things that films should avoid, they should self-censor themselves. And largely the studios thought it was quite a good idea because they could make a film and as long as they abided by these rules, they wouldn't fall victim to the local state censors. Better to censor yourself so you can sell a film from New York to the Bible Belt. I mean, people weren't really that enthusiastic about it, though. And the people who were brought in to enforce the code, uh, notably a man called Jason Joy, who just <laughs> ended up becoming a film writer himself, um, they just didn't enforce it enough. And so people started pushing the boundaries. So you have this period just after the coming of sound in 1929, 
timeline to around 1934 when they bring in Joseph Breen and they start cracking down on the code and really you need to get the production code approval for your film to be released. So in these five years, almost anything goes. What's exciting is that studios know what the rules are and they know they're breaking them. Is this what we know as the BBFC, the British Board of Film Classification? I mean, is it, is it in that sort of similar that what the film industry was trying to do was navigate public taste? Yeah, it's about public taste, you know, because you've got Puritan campaigners, religious campaigners, the National League of Decency and people like that. What we think of as the BBFC is what sort of comes in to replace the code at the end of the 60s when you have different certificates. At the point that that Breen hammers down the code in 1934, it's pass or fail. There was no nuance, there was no subtlety, there was no, oh, that's for young people, that's for teenagers, this is for adults. It was just, you cannot go near these subjects or you have to do it in a certain way. Yeah, and you can still see that influence in contemporary Hollywood. So much of mainstream Hollywood output is quite puritanical and coy. They do not want that NC-17 rating at all because it just limits their audience. What I think is interesting as viewers, even in 2022, we have absorbed all the rules of Hollywood censorship. We know that criminals shouldn't get away with murder. We know that, you know, you shouldn't show sex, you shouldn't show childbirth. All these things are taboo. We know that. And so... You watch a pre-code film and it's it's generally quite thrilling to see them getting away with things that even though in our art films and in many, you know, grown-up Hollywood films, we see those things. I was just looking at some of the plot lines for some of the films that you're showing. Blonde Crazy from 1931 says the plot line, James Cagney and Joan Blondell as a con artist duo robbing hotel guests. And I guess they're doing it with great panache and style, no judgment. And then Babyface from 1933, this is a cracker. Barbara Stanwyck climbs her way to the top of New York, one man at a time. Quite incredible when you think about it. Yeah, you will watch them in 2022. I don't care what hardcore films you think you've watched. Your your jaw will drop. Your jaw will definitely drop at Babyface. With something like Blonde Crazy, it's a little bit lighter in many ways. It's just about sort of seeing people doing crime and it being quite attractive. Pre-code cinema is the absolute golden age of the gangster film. And so many of the things that sort of push at society's points of tension. If you're going to get robbed by anyone, would you really mind getting robbed by James Cagney and Joan Blondell? I can imagine you'd pay money to be robbed and watch them doing it as well. I mean, I do not condone robbery, but it's quite exciting to watch in a film. So pre-code, there was no framework that filmmakers in the industry was operating towards. They made the films that they wanted to make and that importantly would make them money. I mean, what was it that made these organisations or these bodies suddenly say, oh, hang on a minute, we need to look at what the messages are, as it were, or what they're saying and how they're saying it? Well, you know, there would always be people protesting. I mean, you know, you get to the point nowadays, if the Catholic Church boycotts a film, you guarantee a certain audience. It's a difficult time in America, obviously, financially for everyone. And Hollywood is putting a lot of money into its films. So they've got to reach maximum audience. So you can obviously reach a lot of audience by titillating them and showing them sex and violence. But you also are going to cut off your audience if you show things that people won't approve of. One of the things you have to always remember with the pre-code era is... These people knew exactly what was expected of them, knew what was to be avoided and knew they could get away with it. This is the era of Mae West, of universal horror, of everything that's still ribald, risque, outrageous. And, you know, some of the most sort of exciting films that were made in Hollywood. For me, as a youngster, I grew up on Jimmy Cagney and Angels with Dirty Faces, Little Caesar, Scarface. Me as a kind of eight-year-old 
watching these intensely violent films, you can see how they would have been received at the time. And I think about kind of areas that they were exploring, which, you know, as you say, are kind of socially relevant because it was about poverty, it, you know, the dead-end kids. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I think is interesting with a gangster film, we think we're intelligent enough that we can watch a gangster film and identify with the hero's sort of greed for power, his maybe a few moral qualms and his fear of losing his whole empire without saying, well, that means we identify with gangsters and we would go out and, you know, hire killers. Of course, people in the 1930s were just as sophisticated as that. So when you take away this idea that you can see people getting away with crimes, you just kind of infantilise the audience. In the Hollywood adaptation of Rebecca that came in post-code, uh, Mr. De Winter has no longer killed his wife. I don't want to spoil the novel for anyone, but in the novel, he's a murderer. And in the film, you have to sort of get around it. And when it comes to the social problem films, I mean, that's a great genre that flourished in the early 30s. But then when you can't show awkward, difficult things, you can't show someone who's having to resort to crime or work they wouldn't normally to feed their family if you can't show any of that you know these films just lose their bite and Hollywood is a great propaganda machine but it just puts out so much material into the culture if Hollywood can't show you the reality of human life especially when it's got it's a time when people actually need those message films you know Hollywood becomes far far less interesting there's another podcast to be had Pam on that very subject and what's happening in Hollywood at this moment <laughs> but let's stick to pre-code and the films that you and Christina have selected just talk us through I mentioned the plot lines to a couple of the titles but tell us more about the five films that people can see at the festival well, I have to say, this is one of the hardest jobs for Christina and I to choose five films from this rich vein, but we did have a lot of fun arguing over them. So you mentioned Blonde Crazy, which is lover criminals on the run, very snappy dialogue, famous line, you dirty rat. And we're also showing another crime film, which is very different. It's called Jewel Robbery and it's set in Vienna. And we'll find that we have very elegant jewel thieves in this film, Kay Francis and William Powell, I think. And a lot, a lot, a lot of marijuana smoking goes on in that film, which again is something that's now legal in lots of places in America where they're very upfront about it. We wanted to show a film starring the wonderful, underrated, soon-to-be-revived goddess of early 1930s cinema that is Norma Shearer. So we've got a free soul in which this society bitch, Norma Shearer's character, upper-class lady, falls for a bad boy, and of course it's Clark Gable, so that's very exciting. Really, really frank film about sexual desire and the power dynamics between men and women, which pre-code films are absolutely excellent on. I think when people think about the early 1930s they always think of the glamour of Jean Harlow the bombshell who mm. sadly died too young we're showing one of her best films uh, with dialogue from Anita Luce it's Redheaded Woman and Redheaded Woman is this very audacious gold digger film very very frank about sex violence sexual violence rape actually poverty and uh, sort of small town politics as well and the thing is when that film came out Rival Studio said oh that's quite exciting I wonder if we can do one better and they made Babyface which may well be the most audacious film of the pre-code era or many eras to follow. I should say it stars the great Barbara Stanwyck and she is a woman who has been exploited as a young girl. I think the tagline for the film was, she had it and she made it pay. So sort of inspired by a cobbler who quotes Nietzsche, she goes off to conquer the big city with her best friend, played by the incomparable Teresa Harris. African-American actresses did not get such good roles after the pre-code era, believe me. And that's a film that is very frank and very bold, very sort of political, very sexy. And also it does lead me on to one important thing that I have to say about pre-code films. If you're watching a pre-code film and you're having a whale of a time, a James whale of a time, just do me one favour, just pretty much ignore the ending 
They still often have these endings that tie things up in a quite establishment way. So just don't let the ending of the film ruin your pleasure. That's all I would advise you. Just stick to the sex and violence. I'm really looking forward to seeing them because I said they were restored last year and screened at the Lumia Festival in Lyon. There was like a crowd, like you, they were the hottest ticket. All these French cinephiles, they were sold out screenings. They were the hottest ticket in town. Yeah, I mean, when you realise how kind of subject matter and how brave they are in dealing with it, as you say, forget the tied up ending. What happens before and in between is what it's about. But they really are a discovery again in seeing them. And I'd heard the response at Lumiere Festival, and that's you know part of the reason why I was so excited to be putting them on. And one of the things that struck me is the way you describe them is it seems that in these films, women had really much kind of richer and fuller roles where they could exploit the specificity, as it were, of being a woman, which in post code was all very subdued and I mean it kind of came through film noir I guess it resurfaced again through film noir but they were much more prominent lead characters with a kind of three-dimensional one of the things that the code wants to uphold and wants to respect is the institution of marriage you also can't show anything really about sex or about having children so you relegate women to sexless housewives basically you don't even have babies not very interesting to be a woman post code before the code people are daring to show women who live their lives without getting married without having conventional relationships, maybe having children out of wedlock, you know, maybe working for a living, maybe working for a living in a field that we might not consider respectable. And it just broadens out what you can do. There's so many things that we could talk about in the pre-code era that we couldn't talk about in the post-code era. Basically, interracial relationships, gone. Queer desire, gone. So we make everyone quite boring, really. But women particularly, because men always find a way to come out top, don't they? So they're actually very progressive in their representations, which it feels as though it took a good 20, 30 years for Hollywood to sort of get back to showing women in a much more rounded and you know complex way. There are some people who say it was quite a good thing when the code came in because it meant that you had to be suggestive. And this can be great. So basically, everything that you see represented by dialogue and a nice bit of ankle jewellery and double indemnity, Barbara Stanwyck gets to do openly in babyface. Everybody enjoys the dialogue and the ankle jewellery and double indemnity. Which, But I think it's a bit patronising to the audience to always having to be euphemistic about everything and always having to sort of subdue things or always having to make sure that the woman gets toted back into the house afterwards, like at the end of Mildred Pierce, a film which I love apart from the ending, which I think you're getting a theme. I'm not saying you know, Hollywood endings. <laughs> yeah. There's a kind of rewriting of them to be done. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the things with pre-code cinema is that we all sort of enjoy classical Hollywood with their stars, the glamour, the budgets, you know, the sets, the the great filmmaking, the great writers that they have involved in these films. But we get in pre-code cinema to have our cake and eat it because we get all that and we get grown-up plots as well. And that's quite exciting. (laughs) So you've described brilliantly the pre-code films and some of the kind of problems and and issues that Hollywood had with the code and how they got around it. There was no nuance when the code came in. So in 1934 Joseph Breen came in and he headed up the the code office as it were and he was a Catholic and so he was supported by these groups that had been campaigning against Hollywood films for so long and he brought the boot down and said right that's it we're going to check every film and you're going to have to get production code of approval to get out to get released. Some people say that the films themselves basically brought the code in because the films were just getting more and more outrageous. Every Mae West film that comes out has to get more risque. Marlena Dietrich wanders around dressed as a man which somehow just got Hollywood all of a flutter and of course you get films like Red-Headed Woman and Babyface that are just clearly out to sort of anger the moral majority so yeah there's a combination of this 
the growing protests and it becomes not just a protest about one or two films because we can all think of films that have been protested but that generally Hollywood represents sort of a a den of vice and that's not good for business so they needed to uh, clamp down. Thanks very much Pam for that insight into pre-code and uh, the impact also uh, of the code on Hollywood. There is a great opportunity for people to see the films that Pam mentioned that Cinema Discovered, and I think you and Christine are going to be doing some work around them as well. Yeah, absolutely. We are hoping to turn up and watch these films with you, introduce them, talk to people about them, because uh, there is no party like a pre-code party. Coming soon to a cinema near you. Indeed, and that's the best place to see them, is in that cinema near you, and hope to see you and you, Pam, in Bristol at the end of the month. Looking forward to it. I'm a tramp and who's to blame? My father, a swell start you gave me. Ever since I was 14, what's it been? Nothing but men, dirty, rotten men. And you're lower than any of them. I'll hate you as long as I live. That was a clip from Babyface, which is screening in that season pre-code Hollywood, showing on Sunday the 24th of July, and starring Barbara Stanwyck, who also coincidentally appears in the classic Double Indemnity, which is showing in Strand I've put together. For the final section of the podcast this month, I'll be chatting to Mark about his strand, When Europe Made Hollywood, from sunrise to high noon. So you got your strand at this year's Cinema Rediscovered when Europe made Hollywood. I was wondering where did the idea for the strand come from? Were you re-watching one of the titles that you're presenting there or is it something that you've been kind of sitting on or brewing a while longer? It's been brewing for a while um, and funnily enough it was prompted by a film that we're not screening which was the reissue of Paul Verhoeven's Robocop and knowing that that was coming up I'd heard that it was going to be reissued quite a while back and Paul Verhoeven's obviously a Dutch director and this was his first film in America. He'd been a hugely successful director in Europe and in the Netherlands and this was his move to America making a kind of mainstream Hollywood film and that started making me think about directors from Europe who'd made the first feature in Hollywood and in fact another part of this year's festival is a local lad, Jay Lee Thompson, who was born in Westbury on Trim here in Bristol. He made lots of great films in the UK and then with the huge success of Guns and Navarone that he made, he went to America to make his first feature film which was Cape Fear, which we are screening at this year's festival and so it sort of started a bit there but as I say primarily with Paul Verhoeven and and Robocop and it made me think of that sort of incredible movement of European talent to America and the fact that you know you say Hollywood and American cinema and you think America but of course as we know it's a kind of hybrid nation in fact the studios themselves were set up a lot of them by Russian Jews or of Russian Jewish heritage and um, a lot of the filmmaking talent coming in in the kind of 20s once feature films were on the rise and so it started me thinking in that area. But also another uh, source of it that I'd been thinking about was the Frankfurt School of writers, critics, um, thinkers. Aestheticians. Aestheticians. <laughs> and, you know, that kind of early sociology that we're looking at, at what was happening in Germany in the early 19-teens and 1920s. And these were, again, a lot of Jewish backgrounds, Austro-Hungarian, who were trying to understand the kind of forces that were, you know, making people do what they what they do. And in this instance was initially why Germany didn't have a revolution in the way that in the way that Russia did. With the rise of Nazism, which is kind of one of the underpinning parts as well of this um, migration, was they left Frankfurt and Germany where they were developing their thinking and ended up in the west coast of America. Became quite a hub. Yeah, so you, so you have this kind of movement of people from 
kind of deep Europe with all the sort of deep cultural, philosophical tradition. And I just started thinking about, you know, the experiences that that must have been. I mean, the forced nature of it, what was happening in Europe with the rise of fascism, um, ended up in this idyllic sort of paradise. And actually, somebody had used this title, which is Strangers in Paradise, the Jim Jarmusch film, and I thought that perfect title for the season. So yeah, the seeds of it came from those different places. And initially, it was going to be called From Sunrise to Robocop. But also, the other thing is that it's such a huge area. It really did have to be kind of reined in somewhat. And it is such a huge area, that sort of cross-fertilisation. And yeah, From Sunrise to High Noon, it's got a nice little uh, ring to it, but also it marks a kind of significant period which has got a number of things that happened in it, which was Sunrise being that kind of example of Hollywood in the 1920s. Looking to Europe and seeing all this talent that was making films, and particularly German through UFA studios, they'd made The Cabinet of Dr Caligari, they'd made Metropolis, they'd made all these incredible films and it was really one of the kind of stronger film industries. In Hollywood, studio execs were, you know, as they do today, we're looking at these films and thinking, well, we'll invite these filmmakers, not just filmmakers, the cinematographers, the actors, to come over and, you know, make stuff for us. And F.W. Moore now with Sunrise was one of the great examples of phenomenal European talent. And, and F.W. Moore now was, without doubt, hugely successful. And he gets invited to go over to Hollywood to make really whatever he wants. He has carte blanche to make whatever he wants. I mean, people think that only happened to Austin Wells, but actually <laughs> F.W. Moore now really had carte blanche. And he made Sunrise, which is a phenomenal, both creative achievement technically, cinematically, but it's also a really interesting kind of European film made in Hollywood. There's a real European sensibility about it. He doesn't really then get on very well with Hollywood because all these all these things like interference start, start happening. But what he said, there were people that you can imagine, you know, he's he's working in this industry in Germany, he says to his his mates, you know. I'm, I'm going over there, you know, they're giving me money to make what I want to make. You should come over. And of course he did. But that was that sort of wave of that movement, which was obviously based on kind of positive energy around, you know, let's make work. And, you know, Marlena Dietrich, Greta Garbo, who were shown were, you know, European stars who then went over to Hollywood because of the success that they had had. And they are such icons of cinema. And as I say, this was a kind of more open, positive, creative exchange. And then, of course, what happens is the rise of Hitler. And then your forced migration. And then the forced migration. And, and you get, and a lot, obviously, Jewish, um, but anybody kind of in opposition to the rise of, of Nazism has to get out. And so directors like Billy Wilder, um, whose Double Indemnity were shown, and Robert Seward might come out. And it's not just that they, oh, we'll get a flight and we'll go to Hollywood, or we'll, you know, get, they have to get across Europe and they're fleeing. Robert Seward might, for example, I think he spends a good few years in Paris before going over. You kind of put yourself in their shoes and think about trying to continue to make work, trying to deal with something you don't really know the full extent of, because, you know, for obvious reasons, you know, things are obviously reported just now that you can get a sense but people didn't realise the extent obviously of what was happening but they knew they had to get out. Billy Wilder you know goes to Paris for a few years then gets to America. Again the sort of connections between these people Billy Wilder, Robert Seedmack, Fred Zinnemann who directs High Noon all worked on a film together in Berlin in the 30s and so they all knew each other as well and they, there's that kind of contact between them and then they, they go over to Hollywood and in there is that group of people that had been there from the, there's a community that's established and it's such a kind of rich area that all I feel I can do in this season is just I feel as though I'm throwing a skimming stone across the surface and here are just simply eight films that illustrative of this phenomenal creative moment that was partly through 
positive creative energy, as I said, and the other one through this kind of forced migration. And not everybody thrives in Hollywood as well. I mean, it's a very different environment. You know, Hollywood is a different beast than the sort of European studios. I think even to this day, there's a kind of, well, Going back a bit, Hollywood was set up for cheap entertainment. I mean, what it was doing was making a cheap form of entertainment. And so the basis of Hollywood is that it's entertainment folk. And then alongside that come the kind of standard good triumphs over evil, you know, the kind of basics of that kind of form of early storytelling tradition. But with Europe, what you've got is, you know, hundreds of years of storytelling, hundreds of years of artistic tradition and philosophy and all of this. Is that where you see that kind of European influence coming through in terms of these films? Absolutely. So a film like Sunrise is that tradition going into Hollywood. It doesn't do fantastically well at the box office, but there's a recognition that this is elevated to a kind of art form. And I think the early industry wanted that. It's more than just cheap entertainment. It's an art form, you know, and I think this is always this kind of tension within Hollywood about is it entertainment, is it art, can it be both? And I think a director like Moore now sort of illustrates that, but also directors like Seared Mac, Wilder and Fritz Lang. Fury, his first film that we're screening, is a really kind of prescient film about mob justice, which kind of resonates completely with what's just happened in America earlier this year. What they bring is a kind of more complex view of humanity, where what Hollywood wants to do is say there's good and there's evil and good will triumph over evil. What they knew coming from Germany was that it's more complicated than that because the human condition can be seduced into into something that maybe they shouldn't want to do. Double indemnity, Walter Neff, character, salesman, gets seduced into something that maybe he shouldn't want to do. And I think Wilder brought that sensibility right in. To having it. more like layered protagonists, like you say, who can't go astray almost. Yeah, you have more complexity in Seward Max the Killers, Burt Lancaster character, the Swede, is awaiting his death. I mean, it's based on a Hemingway. Again, Hemingway had spent a lot of time in Europe. What you have is existentialism happening on screen, but what you have is it told through a kind of very German expressionistic style because Germany had developed this really rich visual language and you have that coming through into Hollywood. So there was a real creative ferment that was happening that, as I say, introduced into a very simplistic Hollywood, as it were, much more complexity. What I was interested also in with the season is as it was developing the situation in Ukraine, you know, Russia invading and, you know, realising that, as I mentioned, Salka Viertel, she was born in what was the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but which is now part of the Ukraine. And there's a number of filmmakers and creatives that have come from that part of the world in Ukraine. You see these pictures on the news. It just resonates with what must have been like for those people to escape and get out of and develop a career as an exile, but always thinking about what's happening in your homeland. And to see it happening again whilst developing this season, it made me think it's not a kind of historical thing. You know, it's just that these are people with lives, but, you know, there's creative people and they must be thinking what are they going to do with their lives, as indeed people that were going over to America and to ending up in Hollywood were thinking, I'll return home or, you know, something. So seeing that, those parallels just made these older films back up on cinema screen actually speak to now. You're presenting this strand in collaboration with Invisible Women and I wondered if you wanted to speak a bit about how the role of people like Greta Garbo and Salka Vittel and people who are not in the filmmaking seat but nevertheless had like a key role to play in these pictures. Yes, that, I mean that was really important because in the classic Hollywood is always told through male directors and the producers and they're always, you know, it's always men. You know, I was really keen 
to counter that, which is why I wanted to do Dietrich and Garbo. I mean, we've also got Ingrid Bergman in Casablanca. And so there was acting talent on screen, and the three of those are iconic and iconically connected to Hollywood that come from Sweden. And then I, I came across Salka Viertel that you mentioned, and Salka Viertel was an actress. She was born in what is now Ukraine, but she was an actress. And what you find is that actually Max Reinhardt, the great theatre director, a lot of people went through him who ended up in Hollywood. But Salka Viertel would work with people Reinhardt as an actress and was married to Bertolt Viertel who both of them were friends of F.W. Murnau. Murnau said to Bertolt come over write a script he said I'll do that. Salka Viertel says well I'm looking after the kids we need to get things sorted if you go over see how, how it goes then. She ended up going over a few months later and actually set up home in Santa Monica. I mean that expat community all met and you know would say oh there's a new person arrived you know let's have a party let's welcome them and the first person she meets is, is uh, Greta Garbo. And next morning, Greta Garbo calls on Salka Viertel's house and says, do you fancy going for a swim? And a relationship is start, the start is, of a is, decade. Yeah, it's it's the start, exactly. It's the start of a beautiful friendship. And Salka Viertel becomes really central to Greta Garbo's life and creative life and goes on to write Queen Christina. Her husband doesn't get on with Hollywood. There's a great story of him when he's writing a script in Hollywood and he's nipping to the toilet so that he can read Kierkegaard and Hegel, you know, <laughs> and you get, you just get this kind of, it's you know, European it, to work, <laughs> it's, too, it's too European. He just couldn't get with the simplicity of Hollywood. So he ends up going off and directing plays and stuff, but Salkovia, you know, really becomes a, the centre of a community. She's um, quite the host. Yeah, and she holds these salons, which are a very uh, European thing. People coming together on Sunday afternoons. And through her, that community of people, and then it becomes the, you know, with the rise of fascism, it, it gets larger because it includes people like, not just Eisenstein goes through the house, but Einstein and... You know, then Thomas Mann, Bertolt Brecht, Christopher Isherwood's there. Much anyone who's anyone. <laughs> it, really, and of course, they're all talking about what's happening in Europe. The discussion in that room will not just be about the creative, how do you get a film made in this crazy place? You know, that Billy Wilder seems to do it really well. Why, why can't, you know? And Brecht just did not get on with it at all. And actually, Salka Viertel and Brecht wrote a script together. They actually sat down and said, right, you know, we know the formula. You know, Viertel was saying to Brecht, look, Bertolt, they do not want your kind of complexities and things. They want it simple, so let's do something really simple. It never got made, of course. Um, and, and Brecht had to get out once the whole rise of Red Under the Bed scare post-war. But Salka Viertel was really at the centre of this phenomenal community, both socially, but also because she was employed by the studios. She would find herself negotiating, for example, for Arnold Schoenberg, the great sort of revolutionary musician, to do a score for Warner Brothers or you know a studio, which again didn't come off because Schoenberg's sense of his self was created through Europe and his importance was a very European thing. He goes to Hollywood, he's kind of nobody, you know, and for the producers in Hollywood, he is nobody, so he just doesn't have the same status. So, so there's a disjunction between that, whereas Max Steiner, another musician, gets on and creates some of the kind of best, you know, incredible scores in Hollywood. But as I say, finding out that Salka Viertel was, was right at the centre, she kind of forms a thread that connects a lot of um, things. Actually, her and her husband connect, obviously, F.W. Murnau, as I said, but also Bertolt Viertel's first assistant is a 19-year-old Fred Zinnemann who goes on to direct High Noon. And so, in talking to Invisible Women, they're about, you know, sort of surfacing those female stories. And, you know, Salka Viertel, for me, is just absolutely one of the great stories that needs to be retold. And in fact, her memoirs have been republished. I think they've just recently been republished. 
and I really do feel that she needs to be, and in a way, she's the patron saint of the season. But but also not not just a kind of incredible sort of binding of, sort of social cohesion and within that group, but debate as well. I mean, because as I say, with the rise of Hitler, they were dealing with it very immediately. Was America was like, what's all this? It's not going to lead to war. It's not going to. And actually, people tend to forget, but it took the Americans a good few years before they actually got involved in Second World War. Meanwhile, somebody like Salka Viertel would know very real because she'd be communicating and her husband was going back to Europe. So they would know. And obviously people coming through would be saying what was going on in Europe. And she was actually part of a group which set up fundraising to be able to pay for refugees to come over. They had to get visas. They had to do everything that everybody who's ever a refugee who's fleeing from persecution has to do. She set up that to raise money and got a lot of people jobs in the business. She was an incredibly heroic figure as well. And unfortunately, she, like many others who were kind of welcomed post-Second World War with the rise of communism in Russia and the whole fear of communism in America, they suddenly became the enemy. Brecht certainly got out very quickly when he could see what was going on. And quite a lot of people were casualties of that. And Sanka Viertel herself ended up going back to Switzerland, much to her regret. And so the season by ending on High Noon is acknowledging that as well, because High Noon is very much a product of the House of Un-American activities. The whole, have you now or have, are you ever been a member of the Communist Party? And of course, a lot of these people were members of the Communist Party or had left leanings, and which is what made them create interest in work, which questioned everything that was going on around them but in America at that time the, the whole mood music completely shifted and so that's where that framing between sunrise and high noon I think works sort of marks. so well because it captures that specific moment before the disintegration but also you know lots of different people are flowing through it you know like Moore now's connection with Viertel, the Viertels with Fred Zinnemann and so it's a very rich area and I hope that this is a kind of taster for people to sort of go a bit deeper or well, hopefully just hope they enjoy seeing the films back in the <laughs> cinema screen but the other thing I was showing Casablanca as part of it, and people might think it's kind of become a bit of a cliche, Casablanca, you know, I, I, I feel. The classic of classic films. Well, the classic of classic that you only ever watch on Valentine's Day, yeah. you know, it's, it's a great love story. <laughs> And it's a brilliant film and it's a hugely iconic film. It's seen as a high point of Hollywood filmmaking. But in this context, I am arguing that it's not only the most European film ever made in Hollywood, but it's also the most political film that Hollywood ever made. And it's European because just about everybody in that cast, apart from Humphrey Bogart, was a refugee from Hitler or was somebody who had come through that first wave of filmmaking. There's actors that have worked with Jean Renoir who are in there, people that worked with Max Reinhardt. You know, there's a whole European, and, and what the film is about is about trying to get away from Nazism, which they'd just done. One of the stories about the making of it is that when they do the scene when they go back to Paris before the Nazis invaded, some of the extras were in tears and said, well, why, why are you in tears? So, well, that's what we just left. So that just has that incredible immediacy. Of course, it was made by Hungarian director Michael Curtis, who'd already sort of established himself, but they were very alert to the politics of the moment and it comes through the whole film and so a whole lot of European talent in there who either went over and as I say in that first wave or who were forced and then the film is also an important part of reinforcing America to take a position on on the war because America was equivocating all the way through until you know the bombing of Pearl Harbor they weren't automatically there. So it kind of bolstered a sense of taking a position with the Bogart character. And so that spoke to the American people, sympathising, empathising with the play and actually taking a stand in a very immediate contemporary political moment. 
So I'm kind of hoping that we can see Casablanca fresh. And there's extraordinary stories of all the sort of cast and crew in that film. And it seems to sort of embody that moment of the, the European experience. I grab Ugarty, then she walks in. Well, where it goes, one in, one out. Sam. Yes, boss. It's December 1941 in Casablanca. What time is it in New York? What? My watch stopped. I bet they're asleep in New York. I bet they're asleep all over America. Of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, she walks into mine. As I said at the beginning of the podcast, it's a bumper edition. A lot to see at Cinema Rediscovered, which takes place from the 20th to the 24th of July. For more information on not just the seasons that we've been interviewing guests about, but also one-off restorations like David Lynch's Lost Highway and other events that are happening, go to watershed.co.uk. See you in the cinema.